the valley was gone. We shook up the heavy as lead, but we never get up to the cars and bring the breakfast up. Hello, this is God's Own Scale Podcast, and I'm your host, Sean Clark. This is episode 22, and today I'm talking to military historian, battlefield guide, and author, Paul Reed, who graciously gave up his time to talk to me about his career and the Battle of the Somme, which links into what will hopefully be my demonstration game at the Joyce Six next year. It is fitting that this episode comes out the day after Armistice Day, 11th of November, and a few days after Remembrance Sunday. Although this year has been unique in the manner in which we have all had to commemorate the fallen, I'm sure all of us at some point over the last few days have taken time to remember those fallen and taken time to reflect on past wars and conflicts around the world and loved ones who may have fought and returned or those who never came home. I certainly thought back to my time spent in and around the Ypres salient, usually at this time of year, and especially at the Menin Gate, that first great memorial to the missing, unveiled in 1927 by King Albert I of Belgium and Field Marshal Lord Plummer on the 24th of July 1927, under which the last post has been played almost every day since then by members of the Belgian Fire Brigade. Lord Plummer's words at the unveiling of the memorial, which has inscribed upon it around 54,000 names of men from the British and Commonwealth Army who have no known grave, are some of the most poignant words I know of spoken about the fallen. He said, they are not missing, they are here. In news, my pals over at Little Wars TV have made an announcement this week. They are launching the Caesars. This is going to be an annual award show, but the show isn't to award uh, prizes to rules or products. This show is specifically aimed towards historical war game content creators with the aim of encouraging more people to start making videos, podcasts or blogs, whilst also encouraging those who are already making content to up their game to the next level. Hopefully, This will spur people on to uh, get in and start creating some content. Uh, And if more players are putting out great content online, this can only serve to draw more people into the hobby. Uh, And the award show is there to also highlight creators who are out there on the front lines evangelizing about the hobby. So next year on that other little award show, the Oscars weekend. Little Wars TV plan to air their own award show, the Caesars, in their own inimitable style. There's a panel of star judges amassed and close on a thousand dollars in prizes and cash for the winners. The judges include seven hobby leaders. We've got Phil Smith, who is head of Osprey Games, Jeremy from Black Magic Craft on YouTube, Rick Priestley of Games Workshop and Warlord fame, amongst others. For prizes, some categories have cash awards of $100 or $200, whilst others are sponsored by companies like Battlefront, The Army Painter, Deep Cut Studios, and, for those fans of the smaller scale, Backer 6 Mill. That sounds fantastic. In total, there are 10 awards covering videos, podcasts and blogs in categories like 
best terrain tutorial video or best wargaming podcast because <coughs> it's scale nominations are open and close on the 31st of december 2020 new year's eve and little wars tv has set up a special website www.caesarawards.com there's further information on that website about the categories the judges the prizes and how to make a nomination anyone around the world can make a nomination and make however many nominations they want this is wide open after the 31st so starting on the as of the 1st of january 2021 the judging process will begin and winners will be announced in april via a youtube video that little wars tv are producing there are other award platforms out there which recognize um, people's votes for best war games rules or best figure manufacturer that sort of thing but this takes that concept into a different direction looking at the content producers out there and i'm sure you'll agree there are lots of great youtube channels podcasts blogs that really add something to this hobby that really give us as consumers something else to consider some thought-provoking content out there as well as tutorials and battle reports so please engage with little wars tv in their efforts with the caesars it promises to be great fun hopefully some of you will have already seen the little wars tv announcement on their own youtube channel uh, that's a great effort by greg and steve as ever as you all know i'm huge fans of those guys and all the members of the little wars tv team also out of interest if you are a patreon of little wars tv and i highly recommend you become a patron then the eighth judge on the award awarding panel will be the patrons of little wars tv so everybody who is a patron will get to put forward their own vote for each category and influence who receives these awards i'm really looking forward to it it sounds like it will be great fun keep your eyes on the little wars tv channel for more great content and let's see who gets those inaugural awards fantastic stuff okay there will be a hobby update and a blog of the episode at the end of the show but that's enough of me wittering on you're here to listen to the interview let's talk about six Okay, welcome to God's Own Scale podcast. This is, I think it's going to be episode 22. It may not be uh, due to the vagaries of time and and uh, release schedules. I may have got that wrong, but today, I say this quite a lot, actually. I've, I've got a very special guest, and I do mean it in uh, this time. Not that the other guests weren't special, but uh, in, uh, this is an unusual episode in that I have somebody who is um, an acknowledged historian, an author, a tour guide, and a fellow podcaster. I have Mr. Paul Reed with me. Hello, Paul. How are you? Hi, Sean. Uh, thanks for inviting me along. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, the the pleasure's mine, really, because I'm, I'm an absolute 
fanboy of uh, of your podcast, which is uh, do you want to tell us what the podcast is called? Uh, it's called The Old Front Line. Um, the name comes from a from a book that was written by John Macefield in 1917 when he, he toured a bit of the Western Front, and uh, to me, it sort of summed up what the battlefields of the Great War really are in in just a few words. Yeah, and and that's that sort of tells us the topic then for today's chat, really, um, based around the Great War, the First World War. Um, I am a huge fan of the podcast, as I say. I've listened to every episode and a couple of them actually more than once um, because you you are a tour guide, aren't you, Paul? That's right. I mean, that's 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 essentially my, my day job um, and something I've been doing for well, 30-something years now, one way or another, um, full-time for the last 27 years for Ledger Holidays based in, in Rotherham. Um, but uh, my sort of journey, like most people, I think, with this began because, you know, my dad was a Second World War veteran. So I sort of grew up on his stories of Anzio and both my grandfathers were in, in the Great War. And my nan was a little girl in Colchester and she could remember the wounded coming back from the Somme, still plastered in some mud and chalk. And so I sort of grew up on these stories and, you know, any one of my generation in the sort of growing up in the in the early to mid 70s um we were that airfix generation where we made plastic kits um and then military modeling magazine comes along and there's one or two articles about doing things with plastic kits making games out of them and and war gaming for me was a was a you know a natural conclusion i think to all of that along with comics and war movies and and everything else I think it's a familiar story for people of a certain generation, isn't it? That um, I, I grew up in the seventies, and my both my granddads uh, were uh, serving soldiers during the war, and they they tell me stories about it and the, the old war films and the comics, as you say, and then into the airfix and throwing marbles at them until you learnt what a dice was, I suppose, and learnt some proper war gaming rules as such, but. Um, yeah, so did you study history at school or did you take it further? Well, um, what, I, what I did, because basically I sort of lived and breathed it really one way or another, and uh, at, at the same time um, started collecting militaria, which was a very dangerous thing, you know, in the days when junk shops were literally full of this sort of stuff because nobody wanted it. When I went to secondary school, I had a really, really good history teacher and a really good geography teacher who were both absolutely passionate about the First World War. And one of them, um, Les Coates, he went on to publish several books for students on the First World War, two of which, the one on Ypres and one on the Somme, are still available and are still very much used, uh, you know, nearly 40 years, well, it probably is 40 years later. Um, they're, they're still very much available and still, still very much in use. And through them, I had a chance to actually go out to the battlefields of the Great War in 1982. Now, I'd been over to Normandy with my dad before that. In 79, he'd wanted to go to Anzio, where he'd fought, but he talking to him many years later when I fully understood this, he chickened out because he couldn't face going back there. So we ended up going to Normandy in 79, sitting outside the cafe, the Gondre Cafe at Pegasus Bridge, when it was just a little backwater, really, when no one was there. And uh, there was me and my dad sitting on one table and another old boy on another table same age as my dad, and um, the way he was dressed, he certainly wasn't a Frenchman. So my dad said hello to him, 
<laughs> and uh, he said to him, uh, you know, were you in the war? And he said, yeah. He said, where did you fight? He said, here. And he said, well, yeah, I probably guessed that you were a Normandy veteran. He said, but where did you actually fight? He said, no, no, you misunderstand me. I fought here. My name is Major John Howard, and my men captured this bridge on D-Day. So on my first trip to Normandy, I met John Howard, which was uh, which is quite Jeez. something, really. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. So that was followed in 82 by a chance to go to Ypres with the school. And, uh, you know, I'm interested in both world wars, but there is just there is something about the Great War and all these stories, particularly that my nan told me of, uh, of what she saw as a young girl and her generation of cousins that marched off in 1914 and only her brother came back, all the cousins were killed. Um, I really wanted to sort of get out there and, and see those battlefields. And, and through those two teachers, I had a chance to go. And that was it, really. You know, a couple of months later, yeah. I went back with my dad and uh, we walked. We took the train down to Albert and stayed in a very cheap hotel and then walked the battlefields for a week. Um, it's quite incredible, really. And, and in those days, very, very few people went to these places. You never, ever saw another English person. And some of the, the cemetery visitors' books went back to before the Second World War. And a lot of them had German names in from World War Two, when the German occupying forces used to uh, used to visit these places. And the sides of fields had helmets and ammunition boxes and, you know, bayonets and all sorts of stuff. And it was just, you know, as a teenager then, it was quite incredible to just reach out and touch all this history. And and I think for me that was, you know, that was the, that was the turning point really in which this went from beyond something that I'd just grown up with as a kid to being something that did and, and, and still is part of my life and part of part of who I am. So that, that took me on to uh, eventually to university. Um, I did a history and geography degree, uh, not specifically military history, but I ended up doing uh, in my final year a study on uh, the importance of territory and First World War battles for my geography component and something about uh, for my history side of it uh, about ex-servicemen um, and their involvement in the British Union of Fascists in the 1930s uh, because a, a lot of men were seduced by Mosley and co because they were against war and they didn't want to see another war and they rather naively believed that Hitler who um, was a veteran like them would never take Germany into another conflict again but of course you know we we know we know very different now. Um, so after uni, um, again, I've been very lucky in my life, really, in that you know you, you you chance across people. Maybe you don't chance across them. I don't know. Depends whether you believe in fate or not. But um, one of my geography lecturers, uh, first year I was there, he was writing a book on the battlefields of the First World War called Fields of Death. His name's Peter Slow, and uh, it, it's a it was a bit of a groundbreaking book, really, because it, it looked at the battlefields from the point of view of history and then tied that history to an actual location. And um, and he, he sort of mapped all this out in the book as well. And I, I sort of helped him out on some bits of that. And then when I left uni, um, he got me a job in the House of Commons for a little while, but I, I was never really that committed to it. And then um, I decided one day that I'd had enough of it and saved a bit of money. Um, I knew that I wanted to write a book about the Battle of the Somme, about walking the battlefield of the Somme. So I went off to France for three months to go and do that, then ended up staying there for 10 years. So, uh, 
Wow. And uh, I was already guiding tours, really. I started when I was still at university um, on quite a small scale with, with friends in a minibus and then, then a coach. And, uh, and it was quite easy to run tours in those days. You know, you didn't have to be bonded and you didn't have to have the same level of insurance that you do now. But that all changed gradually. And I, I stopped it for a while. And, and when I was in France, through a, a friend of mine, I was introduced to um, the directors of Ledger Holidays, and in April 1997, we did our first tour, which was a four-day tour looking at the Epe and the Somme over the course of a weekend. Uh, they didn't think that anybody would really book on it, um, but you know they advertised six dates, and in the end, there was 13 departures, and they all had three or four coaches on them, so that made them realise that there was a bit of a market for this. And the thing about them was that they, they changed people's access to battlefields in a positive way that it was quite expensive to go on battlefield tours then but ledger came in and, and did four days for 89 pounds um, staying in a three-star hotel and that made people i think sit up and realize that they could go there so since that time and we're not the sole ones responsible for this but that market has grown and grown and grown until the dark days of corona of course which has sort of stopped from all going out there um but over 20-something years with them, you know, we've gone from one tour, and our, our last brochure from this time last year had something like 85 tours in it, covering just about everything from um, Waterloo, American Civil War, Boer War, Zulu War, uh, the World Wars, um, Spanish Civil War, Cold War, Vietnam. So it, it's a it's a massive, massive wow part of worldwide enterprise then yeah yeah and, and obviously that yeah. takes up a big chunk of my time but um that, like i say that's the day job and then on top of that I, I write books about the first and second world war for pen and sword in barnsley and um for about the last 20 years i've also been doing tv work um largely for for the bbc in the days of time watch and meet the ancestors and things like that and then in the last few years, the BBC doesn't quite do so much of that. Uh, Channel 4 and Channel 5 with these sort of forgotten history uh, series and things like that. So that's that's been an interesting um, uh, part of what I do. And, and particularly with things like Who Do You Think You Are? You get dragged into doing episodes with that. It was quite something to stand in a field with Cheryl Cole on the Somme uh, wow. and talk about our ancestors. <laughs> that was a bizarre moment. But, uh, yeah. Well, that makes you an absolutely bona fide TV celebrity in my eyes, Paul. That's incredible. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't know many people who have stood in a field with Cheryl Cole, to be honest, but there you go. Um, <laughs> I did see that episode, actually, but I, I haven't made the link uh, to yourself. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, those sort of programmes, they are what they are. Um, she was actually quite uh, genuinely interested in her ancestor, and quite engaged with the with the whole thing, but but you know people who perhaps wouldn't normally watch a program about the First World War would watch that because someone like her is in it, and it suddenly yes. makes these people think, Do you know what, I you know I have an ancestor who was on the Somme or Ypres or Arras or wherever it was, I should find out about him, and um, and that's that's a good thing because it it raises the awareness of the subject and, and stops it from from slipping away and being forgotten. Yeah, I mean, going back to that that point where you were saying about those early days when you went over there and you saw some of the helmets and the the bayonets or 
some of the detritus, the the, the iron harvest. That mm. makes the thing real, doesn't he? Uh, that really brings it home. And he, as you said, as a teenager, that really changed your perspective on things. Absolutely. And I know that when I when I when I first went there, that was that was very similar for me. I, it was much later in my life when I went that it really brought things home to me. Absolutely. I mean, that's you know, in in those days, there was there was stuff in the fields, but there was also uh, an awful lot of co- local collectors and and some incredible private collections. And uh, my my grandmother was one of my grandmothers was French, so I'd, I've always spoken French one way or another, and uh, sometimes better than others. Um, but um, particularly when a bit of French wine's involved, or, <laughs> sure, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, and 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 through talking to people, um, which is you know one of those things I've been lucky to be able to do all my life, one way or another. Uh, you you sort of get access to these things and. And I, we met some incredible people who had rooms, if not barns, full of this stuff. And just like to, to walk into a barn and see just about every trench weapon you can imagine laid out in front of you, including stuff that they didn't really even have at the Imperial War Museum. Um, that was, you know, those sort of experiences were, were quite something. And uh, and then when I, when I eventually was living over there, of course, this was something that I could do pretty much every day. And I got to know even more people. And, Sadly, I mean, that generation, uh, which were people that had grown up either just before or just after the Second World War, it's, it's fading away in France now. So that the days of those old collectors with these amazing private museums is pretty much gone. And, um, and that, that's a sad thing, really, because, you know, it was really sort of rough and raw history, which is quite good. It's, it's it, it, you know, people respond to objects in a really interesting and I think enriching way and you I see this with school groups that we do um, kids actually want to touch history they want to understand it and, and see that it is real and and to be able to hold a helmet and uh, feel the weight of a rifle or understand how a shell or a grenade works you know I think it's it's really good it adds a different dimension that that raw history aspect is really interesting because Obviously, the the museums up and down this country and and uh, on the continent, I've got a lot of this stuff there preserved, and it's been probably cleaned up a bit and and presented in a certain way. Whereas, if you go into the barn of an old farmer who's just dug this thing up from the fields over the years, it's that's so much closer, isn't it, to the origin of that item. You've got that. You've almost got the DNA of the per- last person during the war who held it still on it. Absolutely, absolutely, and, and, and that is the thing. And, it, and it's not just the weapons and stuff. The amount of personal gear that is lying around on these battlefields is, is yeah. quite staggering. I mean, I, I've never used a metal detector. Anything that I've ever found has just been by field walking or walking along the side of somewhere that's been cleared. And um, not long after we first moved into the house at the Corsal out on the Somme. There's a little sunken lane around the back of it, and we're walking up there, and the, the guy had just done some banking. He'd taken away a bit of earth to, get, to create drainage, and you could see stuff that was in there. And we pulled out um, the lid of a soap dish, a pewter soap dish, beautifully engraved with soap on the top, written on the top of it. And then on the inside of the lid, once it cleared the mud off, there was the remains of the soap. And you could lick your finger and rub it on the soap, and this incredibly scented smell 
um, came out of this thing. And you think, God, you know, who was the last person to smell that? Who had the last wash with that soap and what was the circumstances and how did they lose this? Because it was something that uh, had obviously been probably given to them by a loved one. So, um, you know, I think that's the power of objects, really, that, that to to make you think about the circumstances in, in which they've ended up in the place that you find them or, or what they mean to us. And uh, I think that's a really important part of history. And I think that, that talks about the human aspect as well, doesn't it? Because you can be interested in military and in helmets and rifles and grenades and trench weapons. But if you find a soap tin, that really brings home the human aspect of, of these people that were sent over there um, to fight in this war, that these were people with aspirations and hopes for their own life going forward, maybe wanting to start a family, starting a career. But there was this great full stop in their life that sent them over and put them in this position. And they've got these personal items on them that might maybe remind them of home or has been given to them by a loved one. And then 80, 90, 100 years later, you found that, that in a just by chance as a farmer's digging up a field. It, it brings that human aspect to it, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah, and and of course, you know, in the Great War, soldiers were lousy; they were dirty all the time, and soap was would have been a really important thing to somebody. I mean, I, you know, back in the when I was a student in, in mid eighties, one of the other things that I did is I interviewed a lot of First World War veterans because I was down in Sussex, big retirement area. Loads of people from all over the UK had gone there to live and retire, and um, and I just go and trace these guys and visit retirement homes and disabled ex-servicemen homes and so on and you know they often talk about being covered in body lice and uh, crawling up the seams of the uniforms and one of them said he went home to his mother and said to her you know I'm unclean is the phrase he used you know they, they were embarrassed about it because they'd grown up in um, middle class houses or even working class houses you could have your dinner off the floor they were so clean you know and then to go into a muddy trench or a, a dirty old barn and, and be eaten alive by lice and so on. Soap would have been something that would have been really important to you, I think, when you were out in the trenches. Probably quite a good currency, I would imagine, along with cigarettes. Well, that's right, yeah, yeah, absolutely. The stuff that was sent from home was was so vitally important to these guys. Kept that connection with them, didn't it? Um, So your tour guide, how long have you been tour guiding then? For over 20 years, did you say? It's uh, well for Ledger. It's uh, twenty three years, uh, but I did my first tour in eighty seven, so that's like thirty three years ago now. So, uh, uh, so quite a few years, yeah. And and I've done. I mean, I don't know how many tours I've done. Actually, it's, I often get asked this. It, uh, for Ledger alone, it's somewhere over seven hundred tours or something like that. Um, and those are tours that are minimum of four days. Some of them will be up to like 14 days if you're going down to Italy or places like that. So in sort of peak years of battlefield guiding, I, I could easily do 40 to 50 tours a year. So I was out pretty much all the time doing stuff like that one way or another. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, that's, you know, again, that brings you into contact with huge amount of people from lots of different backgrounds and, um, by the time we started the, the ledger tours, the First World War generation were too old really to travel on 
on battlefield tools. Although I did, I had a, a First World War American veteran travel with me, um, but he, it wasn't to the First World War battlefields. It was to Normandy. Uh, he came from a part of the United States um, where a lot of men were lost on Omaha Beach, and he'd become a naturalised British citizen in the 1930s. But a lot of his friends he'd grown up with lost sons on the 6th of June, and he wanted to go back there before he passed away to go and pay his respects to these guys. So that's why he'd come. But but in those days, in the sort of late 90s, I'd get on a tour going down to Normandy, and I could have 20 Second World War veterans on there coming down there to visit places that, that they um, that they'd fought in, and going to Italy as well, which is a hell of a thing for for anyone really, let alone a guy who fought in the Second World War. I would do those tours, and we'd have a dozen or so Italian campaign veterans, you know, on every on every trip. Um, not just British, but guys that served in Commonwealth regiments and Poles. Uh, been at the monastery at Monte Cassino, so I've been very lucky, really, that through doing the tours, you, you get to meet these guys. And on First World War tours, a lot of people bring their family artifacts with them. So you know, the objects that we're just talking about, but but also things like diaries and letters and first-hand accounts. So it's a continual learning process, which is one of the great things about it. Um, You know, if you live and breathe it, which myself and my team of guides do, it's just heaven for us because, you know, there are days in which we have long days and sometimes hard days. But, you know, you get to uh, meet people who really want to learn a lot and they've brought things with them and, and you can bring these stories alive and, it's great. It's really great. And many people come to visit a particular war grave. And uh, we we do that as much as, as we can. And again, when I first started with Ledger on the First World War tours, this was people often coming to see their father's grave. Now, that's very rare. We, we did have somebody actually the year before last to come to see their dad's grave. He was some incredible age of 100 and something because you've got to be, you know, 100 and something now to have a father who was killed in the war. But back in those early days, there was a lot of guys. There was one, one, one guy whose dad was on the Menin Gate, and the last he'd seen his dad's name on there before, but that was in September 1944 during Operation Market Garden when the truck that he was in had driven through the Menin Gate, and he suddenly realised where he was, and he jumped off the back of the truck, ran up to the panel that his dad's name was on, saw it, and then jumped on the next truck and uh, managed to avoid a telling off from the Sergeant Major. So, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so, it, you know, I've very, been very privileged, really, to, to, to be able to be in this position where history has been right in front of me and, and people connected to that history. You know, I've met thousands of them, which has been fabulous. Having those veterans on the tour with you um, must must be an incredible experience because... You, you must learn as much from them as they do from you. Absolutely, yeah. And I would always make good use of them. I would say to them, you know, come up the front. Don't just tell me this story. Tell everybody the story. And we'd go to places and they'd be talking about digging in on the edge of this village near the church. And we'd go to the village near the church and they'd say, yeah, we had the six-pounder set up over there and bring guns in a foxhole there. And old Jerry was coming through them trees ahead of us there and uh, – uh, you know, an 88 bounced off uh, one of them and flew, hit the wall behind me and we'd turn around and look at the wall and there'd be an impact mark on the wall, you know. So Jeez. it was really bringing these stories to, to life. And uh, and I you know I do miss that. I mean, there's a group from York that I've been taking for many, many years 
And this year actually is the first year in those many, many years which we have actually haven't gone over. And because of their age now, I'm down to the last one of them, whereas originally it was you know almost a coach full of them. Yeah. And um, so those days are, are passing, like the, the generation of the Great War that I knew have long passed as well. And that, that's you know, it's both a blessing and a curse, really, knowing these old guys. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. And do, do you get repeat visitors on the tours with you then? We do, yeah, yeah. I mean, some of the veterans came back quite a few times. Um, there was one guy who uh, lived on the Isle of Wight with his daughter originally. He came from Sheffield, actually, I think. Uh, but he served in the DLI, uh, the Online Infantry, in the Monte Cassino and, uh, and then up on the Gothic line. Um, and he came back to Italy with me several times. Um, but on our general tours, we do get a lot of people that are, are fascinated by military history. Um, perhaps one period is against another and, and they come regularly on tours. And whenever we put a new tour on sale, then you can pretty much predict, you know, who's going to be on the first few dates of it. Um, so we've got a tour next year looking called War War by Timetable, looking at uh, the importance of trains in the First World War, which includes three trips on three sets of First World War train systems that are still out there. And, uh, yeah, it's, we're going to see a lot of familiar faces on that that have been on many other tours with us. That'll be fascinating. What's... Um... What do you put down then to this increased interest? Because you said that when you first started touring, um, it was a minibus, mm. and now you're up to several coaches. What do you put down to the enduring interest or this increased interest that we get in touring some of these battlefields? Well, it you know it increases year on year, really. Um, and I mean, the amount that we take is, is staggering. It's thousands and thousands of people every year. Um, so it's, I think that it's, it's a complex thing really in that it began certainly in the nineties with a, with a rise in interest in family history. Um, so people were looking to trace granddad, great granddad who served in the trenches, perhaps died in the trenches and wanted to find out more, or they knew that a family member was buried in a cemetery there. Um, I mean, regularly in, in the days before the internet, <laughs> Not that we can imagine those anymore, but uh, <laughs> um, regularly in those days, um, people would come and they'd just say, um, I've come to see my granddad's grave. And you'd say, well, where is it? Well, it's in that cemetery on the Somme. Uh, what cemetery on the Somme? Well, the cemetery on the Somme. Well, there's like 300 cemeteries on the Somme. So, um, so yeah, people didn't, didn't quite understand the scale of it, I think, at some sometimes. So that was a, a starting point. And I, and I think when the internet gradually developed as it did in, in the late 90s that fueled a lot of interest as well uh, there was a website called hellfire corner by uh, um, tom morgan uh, and that was the very first great war website for people interested in the first world war battlefields uh, and i think that i think things like that completely changed the way people saw the battlefields and of course the internet's changed everybody's lives really but uh and that's just sort of fueled it ever since, really. And and things now with Twitter and I mean, I'm I'm staggered, really, the amount of engagement that you get on something like Twitter. You know, I have several million people a month look at my tweets. It's just unbelievable. Yeah, yeah it's incredible. Isn't it? uh, you know, and I think it just shows that the the interest is 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 there and is not diminishing. The First World War centenary has come and gone, but people are just as interested in this as they ever were more so perhaps yeah i certainly remember around the time of uh, the various centenary commemorations there was talk that 
now that the First World War is passing out of living his, uh, living memory, will interest in it diminish? And, and should we stop commemorating the First World War like we do the wars of the 19th century? Um, and I, I'm very much against that, obviously, but um, the, the interest just seems to be increasing, doesn't it? That you're right, with the certainly with the inventive podcasts like your own, um, and there's more books being written about the war than ever. Um, and and your tours are doing so well. So that's clearly not true, is it? No, no. And I think, um, I mean, you know, people weren't just suddenly going to walk away from the First World War. The thing about it is, is that most people are interested in it, not from a strategic or tactical or, um, or weaponry point of view. They're interested in it because it's about ordinary men and women in these extraordinary circumstances. And I think the First World War, perhaps more so than, than the second, people cannot really get their heads around how these guys lived in trenches for, for, that, for that amount of time and the conditions that they were in and the types of battles that they fought and the things that they saw. Um, that fascinates people. And, and the human interest stories of, of what it was like to see your mates get killed and come back home and try and explain to people what you'd seen and been through. And, you know, people are fascinated by, by all that. And I, I don't see that ever changing, really. And the First World War, because of the, the education system in the lead-up to the Great War, the Edwardian education reforms, it was a very literate generation. Uh, even, you know, ordinary working-class lads who went down the pits here in Barnsley, um, you know, or worked in the steel mills in Sheffield... They, they, they could express themselves and they, they wrote letters and they kept diaries. And we've got these in archives and, and, you know, more and more of this stuff is coming to light all the time as these artefacts are catalogued and made available and digitised. And, you know, people are fascinated to hear these voices. And I think the generations that are coming will, it'll be exactly the same. And we, we see it with schools battlefield tours. You know, these are kids, they're far removed from the First World War, far removed from it. Um, but they stand there and they hear these stories and they go to graves of teenage Tommies that, you know, often the same age as them or very close to in, in their age. And they, they connect with it in exactly the same way that I did, you know, 40 years ago and, and people have done ever since and, and will continue to do. So um, interest in the Great War is vibrant just as it should be, and uh, and that's a good thing. And I think you've used the phrase on your own podcast that the last page hasn't been turned yet um, on, on the First World War, um, and it's a sentiment I very much agree with. Uh, talking about your podcast then, so what first put the idea into your head about starting the old front line? Well, some years ago, actually, probably 10 years ago, um, I was doing a TV program and somebody said to me, oh, you should do a podcast. And I said, what was a podcast? And um, and, I, and I did end up buying a microphone, which I think my daughter then stole to record music with and things. Um, so I never really, anything came of it. And then the back end of last year, um, after having done a number of trips um, with, with people last year um, that sort of said, oh, you know, we'd, we'd love to be able to sort of take some of the things that you say away with us. You know, how can we do this? And I was like, I don't know. Um, and then it just suddenly seemed that podcasts were sort of coming back. Um, and and I, I did quite a few interviews with Dan Snow, who I've worked with a lot over the years, and, and his podcast was doing really well. So I thought, you know, at some point or other, 
next year, in 2020, I must do something about this, although I have no idea when or how I'll get the opportunity to do it. <laughs> and then <laughs> I know the feeling. <laughs> everything that happened this year happened. And although I was um, working for the first few months, um, uh, and as well as doing the podcast, I thought, well, this is a this is a golden um, opportunity uh, to, to to sort of launch this really because people are sat at home and they've not got a lot to do in some cases, and, and that people are going. We could be away from the battlefields for several months. Um, you know, it's obviously it's going to look slightly different. It's going to be more like a year for for a lot of people. But um, um, so I thought, well, this is the time to do it, and. Uh, and I thought, well, you know, what can I do? Because I mean, there are, you know, there's lots of other people out there doing really great podcasts. Uh, Peter Hart, um, falling back on all these, you know, forty odd years of interviewing veterans in the War Museum, and Matt McLaughlin with these Australian battlefield tours, and uh, you know, there's been a few new ones recently as well. Um, but I just thought, well, you know, essentially a big chunk of what I've done all my life is to walk the battlefields, and you know, I've written several walking books to the battlefields of the great war so um maybe that's it and i thought well i'll give one a try and see if anyone listened to it so i recorded one um doing a short walk through posiers which was the next village to me where i lived on the Somme, and, and i thought you know i suppose i've realized really <laughs> as i've got older that as well as studying history that you actually become part of history yourself and that, <laughs> uh, and that in all these years of visiting battlefields you know, I've met a lot of people who are not here anymore, and and I've heard a lot of stories that perhaps few other people have heard. And and actually, rather than these being boring, actually they they're of interest to people. Uh, so this was a way of telling some of those stories um, and and bringing in all the different faces of the Great War that that is that is there really. Uh, and um, and I'm so pleased that people are, are listening to it and, and are interested in it. And the reaction to it has been fantastic. Uh, um, and it's gone from strength to strength. And, um, and you know, something that has been ex- good for me, I think, uh, at a time when, you know, we've not had a massive amount necessarily of structure in our lives. It's given me a structure of something to do every week. Um, and, you know, it's something that uh, I intend to continue, even if, all this ended next week. The old front line will carry on because I think that uh, it's it's reaching audiences that perhaps previously I'd not had a chance to reach and it's spreading the knowledge of the Great War in a way that I haven't previously done. Um, not everybody's ever going to travel on a battlefield tour. I quite understand that. Um, and This is a way of taking the battlefields away with you in your pocket and, uh, and all I want really is for people to be engaged with this. That's a really great point because I think podcasts have become more and more part of uh, people's acceptance of media and audio. And I certainly listen to more, far more podcasts than I do radio or, you know, the news is pretty depressing, let's face it. So it's great to be able to engage with something that you're interested in and listen and learn whilst you're on a commute to work or uh, whatever it is that you're doing. And one of the things, I think one of the unique things about your podcast, Paul, that gripped me from the first second was that bird song at the start. Um, I don't I don't know why, <laughs> but it, it just really resonates with me and puts me back on the old front line from when I've walked it. 
Well, it, it was for me. It was an important thing to to include in in this, really, because you know I could have put martial music or you know some remembrance music or whatever, and there's nothing wrong with any of that. But having actually lived on the battlefields, um, that they are they aren't museums. Um, they are places in which people live, have families, go about their daily lives, work. Um, so it is a living, breathing environment, and one part of it is nature. And nature actually connects us to the First World War because, again, you know, I remember talking to veterans who were bird spotters who used to watch the birds on their barbed wire um, and uh, could re- could remember them, um, and you know, almost kept a tally of it. And I, and I discovered actually, I've, I've been a member of the RSPB for many, many years. There was an officer um, in the Royal Ornithological Society, actually, who wrote a guide to the birds on the Somme while the Battle of the Somme was still going on and published it in their journal. And bird song is very powerful. I mean, there was a veteran called Norman Tennant, highly decorated, distinguished combat medal, military medal in the Royal Field Artillery, who served in the West Riding Division, actually. And, and he used to say that, sound could transport him back to the great war in an instant perhaps a piece of music but more often bird song and i think the bird song uh, of the skylark in particular which is what i use at the beginning of the of the podcast as a little way of breaking up segments of it, it it's such a powerful sound that connects you straight away to to the song and again you know i can remember Reg Glenn, who was a Sheffield City Battalion man um, at Sale on the first day of the Somme, saying that he could distinctly remember when the barrage lifted at 7.30am on the 1st of July 1916, the first day of the Battle of the Somme, in that fleeting moment when there was silence, he could hear the skylarks above the battlefield. That's just incredible, isn't it? And, And forevermore... When he heard them, it took him back to that moment in time, just before that proud battalion of a thousand men from Sheffield went over the top. And I'd never considered this before, but you talk about these soldiers seeing the birds on the wire. Um, it must have been the only thing of beauty that they could look at over what would have been shell blasted landscapes and filthy trenches that they're living in it must have been the only bit of nature or the only bit of beauty that they could they'd, they'd see for from one day to the next absolutely and and it was a piece of normality in a landscape that just wasn't normal you know this was a generation this was this was the boy scout generation uh, and not just middle class boys but you know working class lads from from all over the uk joined the boy scout movement before the war and a big part of that was that was the, that movement's connection to the natural world around it. Um, so these were people who'd grown up, and which all of that was really important. It was part of the lives that they'd had. Um, and out there with these smashed landscapes, the crater zones, I mean, unbelievable to us landscapes of just mud and muck and slime, you know, to see uh, a bird suddenly appear on the barbed wire in front of your trenches and it reminds you of a day you know, in a country lane somewhere in England when you were a boy. Um, it was such a powerful thing for them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so as I, I've mentioned to you before, 
Paul. Uh, we are on a wargaming podcast, a historical wargaming podcast, and I've got an abiding interest in the Somme that goes far beyond my historical wargaming interest, but um, it's it's something that potentially I'll be demonstrating and displaying next year on the show circuit. Um, so I just wonder if we could go get into the nitty-gritty of, of the Battle of the Somme. I don't know if it's actually referred to as the Battle of the Somme. It's just the Somme, isn't it? We don't often see uh, the, the prefix of the battle. It's the Somme, isn't it, generally, when we talk about it? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a word that's entered our consciousness, I think, the Somme. Um, I mean, it was a battle, um, and, and a lot of the vets used to call it the Somme Battle, actually, rather than the Battle of the Somme, rather oddly. Um, uh, and there were several battles of the Somme during the war, and the Battle of the Somme in 1916 was broken up into a number of different engagements, which I think many were there at the time probably had no idea that they were called by those names. But, uh, you know, after a conflict, historians, they analyse things, and part of that is giving names to things, and, and that's how that all sort of comes about. But the, the background to it goes back to the change in command, really, of the BEF, the British Expeditionary Force, in 1915, when Sir John French um, is sacked, really, after the Battle of Luz in 1915, which has not been the great push and breakthrough that had been hoped for, Sir Douglas Haig becomes the commander-in-chief and remains so for, for the rest of the war. And one of the things that he does, he meets with his French counterparts to discuss forthcoming offensive ideas for 1916, for the following year. Now, the British sector of the Western Front was then divided between a portion of Belgium and a chunk of northern France. And quite frankly, the French were not interested in Belgium because it wasn't France. They were interested in kicking the Germans, the old alley man, out of, uh, out of France. Um, and their idea was for a joint Anglo-French offensive to try and rupture, properly rupture the German line and achieve a breakthrough, which the offensives in 1915 had failed to do. And the ground of their choosing was the Somme because uh, the British army expanding at this time was gradually taking over more and more of the front. And a couple of units had gone down to the Somme in 1915, but the line wasn't probably extended until early the following year. Um, so it would mean that there would be a, a natural join at that point between the French army just north of the River Somme and the British army um, to their north on their left flank, essentially. So if you're going to launch a joint an offensive with a British army and a French army attacking simultaneously, this would be the best ground to do it. They tried it where the British were attacking in the north at Luz, for example, and on the, um, in the Champagne near Reims and then Notre Dame de la Rette and Vimy Ridge. And that was, there was too big a gaps between those places and it wasn't well coordinated. So let's have a big push, a really big push, We'll use the new army, Kitchener's army, to, to, to do it. This vast legion of volunteers that have been recruited in 1914 and 1915, and, and the French are all set to do it. But, of course, you know, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. And uh, in February 1916, the Germans attack in the Verdun salient with the intention of bleeding the French nation white. And, um, you know, the... The elements of that battle don't really concern us, but what it does do, it draws away a huge amount of French manpower to defend Verdun, um, which had previously been allocated to be part of the Battle of the Somme. So as 1916 moves into the spring and as the summer approaches and the fighting at Verdun intensifies, the Battle of the Somme becomes much more of a British affair than, than a French one, 
although French troops do take part in the battle on the southern sector and the area around the River Somme it's, uh, itself. And towards the end of the battle, as the Verdun uh, offensive um, by the Germans is now is now a defensive battle for them, and, and it's the French who are on the offensive, pushing them back. French troops are released, and they do take part in some of the final operations in October and November of 1916. But the plan really remained the same: is that it, it wasn't just it was never just about relieving pressure on Verdun, although increasingly from the French point of view, you know that was a major consideration because they they knew, and the Germans knew it too, that there's no way you could fight a major offensive at Verdun and then a, a, a big defensive battle at the Somme. So it would split the, the Germans' intentions and their forces um, and probably, hopefully, from the French perspective, cripple their their ability to, to break through at, uh, at Verdun. And, and when you look at the battle, when the battle be, does begin in July 1916, within 10 days of the offensive beginning, the last German offensive at Verdun takes place. The men, uh, German assault troops, get up onto the roof of Fort Souville and handfuls of them stand there and look down across that shattered landscape down into the city of Verdun and see the sun glinting on the River Meuse and, and that's the nearest they ever get to it. Uh, and then for them, that's the end of their offensive and then the French start put, pushing them back and the Germans find themselves now defending um against the French at Verdun, pushing them back, and the British on the Somme. So in that respect, from the from the French perspective, it changing from just a big breakthrough battle to becoming, for them, about relieving some pressure, uh, it succeeded. From the British point of view, it was always about achieving a breakthrough, to, to rupture the enemy line, breakthrough, and, and end the war. Um, I mean, not quite as in Blackadder, you know, moving your drinks cabinet six inches nearer to Berlin or, or dining out in the Unter den Linden or whatever. Uh, I mean, that's great comedy, but not quite the truth. Um, you know, the British Army was a serious army in 1916. It was quite a modern army. Um, and although Hay is portrayed as, as some uh, dunderhead who was stuck in the past, you know, he was a man that encouraged the development of the uh, implementation of automatic weapons formation of the machine gun corps and then eventually um, enabled tanks to uh, to be used for the first time and you know he let army commanders and some of the good army commanders let corps commanders come up with ways schemes of doing things and the whole army begins to evolve and change and more and more it moves towards fighting a, a modern what we call a modern conflict uh, in the same way that armies have, have fought those sort of battles since um, but that takes time and along the way of course are these huge casualties the Battle of the Somme cost Britain and the Commonwealth 450,000 men killed, wounded and missing um, so the idea although historians like Gary Sheffield now don't like to use the word learning curve um, the reality is if you know any degree of learning will always cost and the cost is in human lives and that's Something that you know your average person on a battlefield tour can't again can't really get their head around the scale of these losses, and, and they can't see that they are justifiable um, in terms of the outcome. But you know we were fighting; we occupied a hundred miles of the Western Front, Belgians about twenty, thirty miles of it, and the French over three hundred miles of it. And on the other side, Germany was occupying all four hundred and fifty miles. Um, it was a massive army, and, and it wasn't just going to walk away. Um, and we. The only way we could defeat it was to fight it to a standstill. Um, 
but it was a war that no one had planned for. Everyone was prepared for war in 1914, just just not this war. Yeah. The the British Army then had been rebuilt after the near destruction of the BEF. Just how prepared was that army? How professional was that army that went over the top on the 1st of July? Well, it varied greatly. If you look at the, the units that were that went into action on the first day of the Battle of the Somme, they weren't all Kitchener's army men. They weren't all new army guys. There were regular soldiers there, and there were quite a lot of territorials as well. And the regulars and territorials, and some of the Kitchener's men had actually seen action in 1915, so they'd gone over the top in the Battle of Luz, uh, and for the regulars and territorials, probably Albers Ridge and uh, New Chapelle and, and battles like that. Um, but it was an evolving army. It, it was highly motivated. I mean, if you'd have, if we could go back in time and just randomly sample some Tommies on the eve of the Battle of the Somme, every single one of them would have been convinced that they were about to win and, and be, uh, convinced they were about to break uh, the German defences. Everyone believed that, from Phil Marshall, you know, right down to uh, ordinary ordinary soldiers. But its training at that point was mixed. Um, if you look at the sort of training that they did, um, behind the lines near Albert, there's a position called Long Valley, which is where some of the assault troops that went into attack around Overs and Mobile did their, their training. And, and they did that by putting white tapes across this valley to symbolise the German trenches. Um, and, and the drummers would beat out the sound of the bombardment um, on their drums and then they'd all just walk forward with their rifles at the port and just roll up the German lines without thinking it was ever going to be any opposition. Um, so when, I mean, as I did speak to men who took part in that battle, they were not well prepared for what actually happened because everybody believed that the bombardment, which was the biggest British bombardment of the war at that time, one and three quarter million shells, they thought this is just going to destroy old Fritz on the other side of no man's land, there's going to be nothing left. And, uh, you know, if you were an average Tommy and somebody said we're going to chuck one and three quarter million high explosive shells at the, to the guys on the other side of uh, no man's land, you would think nobody could survive that. But what we didn't really anticipate or understand on the Somme was is how deep the Germans had dug and how deep their dugouts were, um, you know, tens of feet, some of them 80 feet beneath the surface. And if you look at the artillery that fired that bombardment, the bulk of it is divisional artillery. So it's 18-pounder and 4.5-inch howitzers, most of it 18-pounder. And a big chunk of that is shrapnel to cut the wire. And, um, you know, 18-pounder high-explosive shells are not going to get into a dugout 20 foot beneath the surface, let alone 80 feet. And, and the big guns, although we had stuff up to 15-inch calibre, naval guns, um, manned by the Royal Marine Artillery, and there were 12-inch railway guns uh, as well. We didn't have enough of them, and the coordination of them was poor, and the artillery plan for the first day of the song was too rigid. So when it, when it lifted at zero hour and it moved off to these distant targets, there was no way of calling it back uh, because there was no embedded artillery liaison officer with most units. So it meant that no one could say, well, actually, there's no point in bombarding that field the other side of Posy is with nothing in it. Uh, we need it here at the uh, at the Granatan Lock, um, taking out these Germans who are coming down this communication trench. But there was no way of doing that. Um, they had the physical ability to do it through communications, but nobody actually had the power to call the bombardment back. 
Um, so that rigid approach to things like that was something that quickly changed. And if you even if you jump on a couple of months in the Battle of the Somme, you start to see forward observation teams from divisional artillery units being embedded in infantry battalions for actions that take place so that the artillery can react more quickly to the needs of the infantry on the ground. And as the war goes on, that becomes more and more sophisticated with the element of air involved and coordination and cooperation between units on the ground and in the air and so on. So it's at the beginning of that point in which it becomes this modern army. Um, There's a it may even have been uh, AJP Taylor, but the, there's an idea that when you look at the beginning of the Battle of the Somme, the 1st of July 1916, and then you look at the end of the Battle of the Somme, 18th of November, the 1st of July looks back to Waterloo. The 18th of November looks forward to Normandy in the way that battles are fought. And I think it is this turning point. And, and AJP Taylor certainly said that for him, the 20th century really began on the 1st of July 1916. Uh, and in that, I think what he meant was that, you know, it heralded this new type of century, industrial warfare, casualties on an industrial scale um, and killing on an industrial scale, which would characterise much of the rest of the century. That's an incredible thought, isn't it, that um, to, for one to ponder over, that there was such a big learning curve in that couple of months, that three months that the battle lasted, that sounds as though it changed the attitude of everybody involved. Absolutely, but it, it costs so many men's lives, and I think that's what people find it hard to understand. That there's, there's no with World War Two. There's an obvious baddie, which is Adolf and all his buddies. Uh, but for World War One, the concept of the Kaiser being a threat to Britain, it's been lost over time. But the German you know, nation, Imperial Germany was just as much a threat to British interests to that generation as Adolf Hitler and the Nazis were a generation later. We just can't quite see it now from a 21st century um, perspective. Yes, yeah. So it's it's well known, the, the casualties of the first day and then um, as, as they move towards uh, the, the finish of the battle in November, what... Was the lead? How did the leadership develop then? Were, were they accepting of the fact that this was a massive disaster on the first day, um, or were they trying to paint this as some sort of pyrrhic victory that the the, lo- the loss of all this life was worth it for the small gains that we made, and then we developed a tactics? How, how did they perceive those early days of the Somme towards uh, how they perceived it at the end? Well, I don't think any commanders ever admit they've made mistakes. Um, but uh, And I think that because of communications, men like Haig and, and, and those at General Headquarters, would it would be quite a few days before they were aware of just how big uh, the casualty list was for the first day of the Battle of the Somme. You know, 57,000 casualties was unprecedented. The only nation that had come close to this in a single day was France in the Battles of the Frontiers in 1914, which... I think most British commanders in 1916 wouldn't have any idea that 20-odd thousand Frenchmen were killed in a single day in, in, uh, in 1914. So when that sort of realisation that that was all happening eventually came in, the battle was already continuing, and I think it was a case of putting that knowledge to one side and, and, and deciding what was the next best thing to do. And so you see two weeks in on the 14th of July, 
a completely different battle being fought. Uh, Congreve, who was the corps commander on the southern part of the front, uh, wanted to do a night attack. And he went to Rawlinson, who was the 4th Army commander, who wasn't very keen on the idea. And the French weren't either because their troops were not trained to attack in the darkness. Um, and uh, there was a belief that you couldn't pull this off on Salisbury Plain in peacetime, let alone under war conditions. But uh, Congreve, who'd been awarded the Victoria Cross in the Boer War, uh, and his son a few weeks later would be awarded a posthumous Victoria Cross, um, he wasn't having any of this, so he went to Hague direct, and Hague gave him the green lit the whole thing, and, and the, the 14th of July attack went in, and it advanced an incredible distance, and it, it really changed the approach. And it's it's the first time that you clearly see that we're we're using what you could describe as a creeping barrage. I mean, that would be perfected as the, as the battle and indeed the war went on. But it's a it's a it's a point in which the army changes, I think, and that's two weeks after the first of July, and. Uh, you know, men like Congreve would have been aware of, of of what had happened, and I think there was a realization that you you couldn't just send lines of men forward and expect through weight of numbers or weight of shells just to succeed. It was more complex than that, um, and they didn't always get it right. Even on the fourteenth of July, they broke through, took High Wood, but the reserves were too far back, and they couldn't um, couldn't get them up in time. And the Germans came back into the wood, and you know, there was another two months of fighting in that area. So. It was it was something. The coordination of the First World War is very difficult, and one of, one of the elements I would guess from from a war gaming perspective is is the communication side of it. Is that you know this was a twentieth century war using cutting edge twentieth century weaponry, but they were using nineteenth century static communications, which very often broke down. Static communications in terms of telephone lines, runners, um, you know, which are susceptible to enemy fire. Um, signalers that have to stand on a little knoll somewhere with a signalling lamp or flags uh, and morse back a message. You know, all of this was not ideal, and it meant that commanders couldn't talk to the men on the ground and really uh, react to what was happening. Yeah. So when, once the attack was going in, it was very difficult to recall it. I imagine, and that that the the commanders, the the high command, the senior command. Uh, really just had to wait for the news of what came in and there was little ability to de- uh, alter the plan. Absolutely, and, and that's why the men that, who practice for these attacks just practice doing the same thing again and again and again um, so that they, it wouldn't matter because if, if they knew what they were going to be doing, um, then they could just carry on and do it. But that, of course, assumed that uh, old Jerry uh, was going to let you get away with it, which obviously he wasn't. So... Uh, you know, this was the realisation as well. And we were fighting a tough German army on the Somme. This was the last of their pre-war regular army, both regular units and reserve units, some of whom, you know, around Thiepval, which we're going to talk about, you know, had been dug in there for nearly two years. Um, so they knew this ground intimately. So we, we were not just facing any old opposition. Uh, you know, the old phrase, old men on bikes and children. It was These were... Um, these were tough soldiers uh, with well-entrenched and well-prepared positions. Yeah, just before we go on to Thiep Val, um, do you think anybody, any of the high command came out with their reputation intact or improved? Uh, I think I think certainly the senior commanders like Rawlinson and 4th Army and, and Haig himself, I, I think that they, I don't think at the time that their, their reputations were damaged by the Battle of the Somme. I think in the post-war world, um, particularly once Haig was dead, 
the knives came out and, and politicians, particularly Lloyd George, looked to blame somebody. Uh, and that's where a lot of our misconceptions of command in the First World War, I think, come from. But there were, there were others at a much lower level, um, at core level, uh, that uh, didn't really come out very well, I don't think, and um, but got away with it because of, of who they were. were. General Snow at Goncourt is a good example of it, who blamed the failure of the diversionary attack there on, on, on his own men. But they had a lack of offensive spirit, you know, which was a disgraceful thing for a commander to say about many commanded. And um, so people like him don't come out very well from things like that. Okay, um, so Tietval is the is my particular interest. Um, it is a place I've visited uh, on several occasions, but never really had the chance to walk the fields in the sense that I could get a grasp of what the fighting was like um, around there, particularly on the first day, which is going to be um, the essence of my display for next year. Um, is Tietval an area you know well, Paul? But it is, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was um, uh, a village away from where I live for, for for a decade, and a place I, I don't know how many times I've been there. It's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times to Thiepval, and I've walked it intimately uh, over the years as well. And it's an interesting part of the battlefield. You know, it's it's one of the it was then in nineteen sixteen one of the great bastions within the German line. It was the largest village on the Somme before nineteen fourteen. Which, you know, when you go there now, you'll be forgiven for believing that, really. But uh, because it's a tiny place now, but it was dominated by a chateau. Um, and the, the family who lived in the chateau had employed a lot of people on farms and the estate over many centuries. Uh, and what happened was they died. Everyone fled in 1914. The chateau was taken over by the Germans, became part of their forward positions. Um, the family who lived in it were elderly, they had no sons or heirs, they died during the war, never came back, Chateau was never rebuilt, and all the people who had worked on the estate, the majority of them never came back. So it went from being the largest village to one of the smallest villages uh, on the Somme. But it, it sits on the Thiepval Ridge, which is an important feature on that part of the battlefield, and, and it's ground that if you occupy Thiepval, you dominate all the approaches to it, to the south, uh, down towards Albert, uh, the nearest town, and then to the west, uh, across towards the the valley of the river Onk, um, so it was not an easy position to try and take on, um, which is why they had three divisions uh, allocated to uh, to give it a go with um, others behind them that would carry on with the advance once this line was uh, was broken, and the Germans had built a whole system of defences here um, to the south, Leipzig Redoubt, and then to the north, Schwaben Redoubt, um, Schwaben being one of the most famous ones and the Schwaben in particular was a perfect defensive position in that it was built on a reverse slope so that anything approaching it would be skylined and perfect targets for the defenders and it was interlinked with uh, uh, tunnels um, and deep dugouts some of which were probably concrete lined and when you look at the air photos it looks like an American Civil War redoubt you know redoubt that's that's where that sort of phrase comes from really and um it was built in a time in which no one was really threatening them when this was a French sector. So the Germans had built the best defences possible. Um, it's a credit to the Ulster Division that they should get into it on the 1st of July, but um, but uh, it, it was not, none of it was an easy position because there was, because it was a ridge that essentially bends 
and curves from north to south and the Germans are on the tops of, of the ridge pretty much everywhere. Everyone attacking one way or another is going up some form of slope to a lesser or greater degree. The Ulsterman had it a bit easier because it was more of a gradual slope, but there was a skyline and beyond that was the Schwaben and, and that's where they ran into serious problems. And beyond the Schwaben, the ground drops away. There was a big valley there, um, which was a battery valley where the Germans had their field guns. And then beyond that is the village of Groncourt down in the Ancre Valley. Um, but uh, to get through to those positions was going to take some fighting. But when you look at Thiepval village itself, which is the higher point, um, the brigade of the 32nd Division that was going to go up the slope straight towards the village, which was made up of three battalions of Lancashire Fusiliers and one of Northumberland Fusiliers, these were all um, Kitchener's men, New Army battalions recruited in Salford and Manchester. They were going straight up a slope that was probably about 30-odd degrees with the Germans at the top of the slope with well-entrenched and well-sighted machine guns, and these guys just didn't stand a chance. Um, and to the south, where the Leipzig Redoubt was, um, that was there's a quarry, it's still there, some form part of it, and it was a curve in the line from the result of an early engagement in 1914. Um, but again, that commanded both in ev almost every direction it could see um, towards the, the British line. Uh, and then behind it, beyond Thiepval, was Mouquet Farm, which was on the main headquarters and communication um, area for the for the units in the line here. 180th Regiment defended Thiepval itself. They were a Württemberg unit from Stuttgart. And uh, their barracks in Stuttgart uh, are still called Thiepval Barracks after their long defence of this ground. And they'd They've been here since November 1914, so they knew every blade of grass pretty much uh, in this sector, and, uh, and and they had a huge number of machine guns that were well sighted, and none of them had been damaged in the preliminary bombardment, so every gun was firing, uh, and uh, the attackers coming up some of those slopes didn't really stand a chance. Yeah, it was from the the reading I've done uh, myself and. It was a pretty tough call, wasn't it? And we've got the Ulster Tower there, haven't we, which commemorates uh, the actions of the Ulster Division. Was that the 36th Division? It was, yeah. And and they, uh, and in fact, a couple of elements of the 32nd did it as well. I mean, the Ulstermen, it is said, were so keen to participate. They, they, they were out in no man's land before zero hour. But it was a decision that was made um, to attack while the bombardment was still going on. And this is something, again, that you see becomes increasingly the case as the war moves forward. The successful assaults are the ones that have men on the German wire at the point that the bombardment lifts, not let the bombardment lift and then go over the top and walk across no man's land. That's, that's Operation Certain Death. Um, so um, the Ulstermen, one of the reasons why they initially do so well is they're pretty much on the German front line, which has taken a bit of a battering. The wire's pretty reasonably cut. And their, their troops and Royal Irish Rifles uh, and the Royal Inskinning Fusiliers get into the, the German trenches there uh, around where the Ulster Tower is today pretty quickly. And, and within about an hour after zero hour, they are in the Schwaben Redoubt. But that's when all hell breaks loose. The Germans react and they drop a box barrage down on no man's land, blocking it off, basically. Um, which means the men who are fighting there, it's difficult to resupply them with ammunition and bombs and trench mortars and so on. Um, and the Germans then hit them with counter-attacks for the rest of the day. And, and when you read some of those Ulster accounts, 
they're using German stick grenades at the end and captured weapons and you know because they've run out of their own gear. Um, so they fight bravely, but eventually they're overwhelmed and uh, the division loses over five thousand men, which is you know, a staggering number for a single division. Yeah, and were they, were they getting flanking fire from Tietval as well from the machine guns there because of the thirty second not managed to get up to there or to, or take it in sufficient time. Absolutely. If you look at the attack that happened on their immediate right, so this is the one involving the Salford Powers and the, the Newcastle commercials, you know, a good chunk of that was over probably in the first 30, 40 minutes of the battle because the Germans just hit it with every bit of machine gun fire they had and it just melted away. I and mean, this is a phrase you see a lot with the first day of the Battle of the Somme attacks, melting away, and, and it melted away. And it meant those same machine gunners having dealt with that attack, and there's no other attack coming up that slope, they can then turn their weapons on the, the Ulster division that are now fighting in the Schwaben Redoubt. So they suddenly find themselves being fired at from all sorts of different directions, not just from the Germans in front of them, but from the Germans behind them to their right. And then because of the failure of the attacks on the other side of the valley around Hamel and up towards Beaumont Hamel, uh, there can be German fire coming from, from that direction as well, um, because these German units are all part of the same division, 26 Reserve Division. So, you know, they practice mutual cooperation and uh, assistance in the lead up to this. Um, so it means that where attacks have failed elsewhere, everybody else's guns defending the German line can be put onto units that are still trying to break through their positions, in this case, the Alter Division. Yeah. On that on that morning then, when um, they've stepped out the trenches, the Ulstermen have... have crept up under cover of the barrage, barrage to the German wire and the, the 32nd, was the 32nd division, was it, mm. did you say? Yeah. The, yeah. Um, so what was that land like there? Because between the, the British and the uh, German trenches, was that your typical moonscaped um, uh, no-man's land that had been just full of craters or or had that actually been disturbed at that point? Well, it was it was uh, like most of no man's land on the first day of the Somme. It was waist high grass. It was all overgrown fields, and the, the, there was visible destruction around the German trenches. But no man's land itself had not been targeted because there was no one in it. And um, so that you know, when you read the accounts of these men, they they often refer to it as elephant grass. Um, they move out into no man's land into this waist high grass, um, and then you know, one account. In fact, I remember a veteran saying this: that the bullets seemed to be taking the tops of the grass tops off as they were coming across, uh, and these bullets were skimming across the the top of these overgrown fields, and eventually finding their mark with the men uh, moving through that grass towards the machine guns. And the Germans had sighted their weapons, so they fired from an enfilade position, so from a side position, not straight. It's not like the films, as you know, where they're coming up and then mowing people down. <laughs> it's not quite like that. These the Germans use, as we increasingly did, use machine guns like artillery, and they're laying down arcs of fire from two different or multiple directions. Um, and these guys just walk, eventually walk into a wall of fire. Um, and uh, and that's when the serious casualties begin. And, and this is one of those difficult things to imagine, isn't it? Because... Um, th- this this order that had come down from high command that the wire is cut, that the Germans will have been blasted away, so there's no need to rush, and that you get out and you you advance at high port. Um, there's no to be no running. Um, 
and it'll be a breeze. It's difficult to imagine, isn't it? Being one of those chaps in the trench thinking, have they, do they believe that there's going to be no opposition? I mean, pretty soon, I should imagine, certainly for the the Salford pals, the Manchester uh, pals, as they get out and start to hit, uh, receive that fire, that's pretty much blown away, isn't it? That concept that they're going to walk over to the wire. It's, it must be difficult to get inside the heads of, of those young men thinking I'm going to walk however many hundred yards it is and just walk, drop into this German trench and take it. Absolutely. And it was, of course, it was broad daylight, 7.30 in the morning. It was broad daylight. And, and the reason for that is, I mentioned before, the French were not trained to attack in the darkness, so zero hour was dictated by them. Um, and as these first waves, you know, in, in this case, these men from the Lancashire Fusiliers, uh, the Salford Powers moving forward up that slope towards Thiepval village, uh, fully expecting there to be no opposition whatsoever, um, then suddenly realising that there there is, and, and those guys would have been dead or wounded in the first few seconds. It's the ones coming up behind them that I often amaze at, really, because they're seeing all this unfold and they're having to step over the bodies of men killed in front of them, but they keep going. They don't relent and pull back. They keep going because that's, that's what they're trained to do. Um, so wave after wave moves forward and wave after wave is is mown down to, to, to little effect, really. And uh, and again, you know, talking to the guys that were there, um, one guy saw fire coming in from the German positions and, and to his right he saw men disappear into the grass and he thought the platoon commander had given an order to take cover, so he took cover. Um, and what he was actually seeing, of course, was the machine guns blazing at his mates and he ducked at the right time. And uh, that saved his life. So, you know, it was a, it was a bloodbath, really, the, the first phase of it, um, particularly on, on that sector around Thietval village. Uh, the Ulster division had got into the German trenches through through being out in no man's land before the bombardment had ended. But these guys went over the top, zero hour. Um, the brigade commander there had actually stopped the battalion commanders from going forward with their men because they wanted to basically be the first man over the bags and lead them up the hill. And he said, no, well, we need you to um, wait back, let your men capture the village. You can move up, set up your command post, and, and then we'll carry on towards Posiers. Well, what they had to do was stand there and watch the proud battalions that they'd raised and trained and brought to France be annihilated before their very eyes. You know, and uh, We tend to think of senior officers being uncaring and not interested in their men, but you know, th- these guys knew them intimately. Um, and, and we can only imagine what was going through their minds when they saw this happening. So what what did we achieve then uh, by the by nightfall on the first of July uh, in that sector? <laughs> Good question. Um, the Ulster division had been pushed back to the German front line, and a section of that was still held. The Forty Ninth West Riding Division, who was in reserve in the wood, moved up, and um, Hampshire Battalion, the Orton Lanks, and local territorials from Barnsley, they were part of the units that went in and, and relieved what was left of some of the Ulster division, and and also made some. Uh, assaults towards the Germans at that time on the 1st of July to try and push them back down the communication trenches. So there was a bit of line held there. Um, Thiepval village still very much in German hands and the area to the south around the Leipzig Redoubt, they got into a bit of the trenches there, but that would be hotly contested really for the next couple of months. Um, and Thiepval wouldn't fall until the 26th of September, um, which was two and a half months later. 
uh, it remained in German hands for that time. Uh, and, and in the end, the, the successful assault came in from the south. Rather than trying to take it from every angle, they used all their resources in one area to break through and push, and they had tanks assisting them, not massively successfully at the Steep Vale, but um, at least they were there. And uh, as the battle moved on to its final phase in November, um, tanks were, were being used to the south to clear up what was left because the village of Saint-Pierre-Divion, which is a little bit further down the slope towards the Yonkra Valley, the Schwaben Redoubt was captured in September, Thietval was captured in September, but on the, on the 13th of November, Saint-Pierre-Divion to, to the south, or to the north rather, to the left of this position, um, was still in German hands. So there was this odd, odd arrangement where you know we, we had literally Germans behind us um, on, on both sides of the Ankara Valley, and all that took uh, a degree of sorting out. But it was a very different battle in November, and again, tanks were used and artillery used in a much greater extent, and more heavy guns were used, um, so that the German line was was properly broken up. So my my interest in this is uh, a fam- I've got a familiar um, familial. Uh, context to it and that's a, a great uncle was in the Salford Powells but came home uh, one of the few who did um, but I will be hopefully recreating this this sector of the Somme in, in this uh, in this war game uh, next year using a set of rules called uh, Great War Spearhead 2 uh, which is well acknowledged in the wargaming hobby as being a pretty accurate or as accurate as you can be when you're playing with toy soldiers essentially in recreating some of these battles um it's written by a, a guy called sean taylor with the help of robert dunlop who's been a guest on the show previously uh, and it recreates some of this difficulty of command and control uh, pretty accurately but the the actual scenario for the uh Tietval sector uh has the 36 and the 32nd Division uh, attempting to take the Schwab and Redoubt and Tietval and then moving on to um, the second and third lines and Mouquet Farm and the Stuff Redoubt and was it Goat Redoubt? Yep, yep. There was, uh, and they got the NAB to the south and uh, and then Stuff Redoubt um, beyond uh, Thietval towards Mouquet Farm, beyond that Zollengraben. I mean, the trench system that was there was it was a massive trench system and Regina Trench linking up that area over the other side of Corselet. Uh, you know, it wasn't just one line of defences. The Germans really did believe in defence in depth, and you see it very, very clearly at Thiepval. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I know from other people that have have played out this scenario that it, it's it's pretty realistic, and that the British really struggle to get much beyond uh, that first line of trenches and and past Thiepval and. Uh, the Schwab and Redoubt. So it, it's not um, a game in the sense that as the British player, you're hoping to just stroll right across to from one end of the table to the other and uh, win glorious victory. It's I'm hoping there's going to be an educational aspect to it to uh, just have some sort of concept of what the difficulties of, uh, of playing, uh, of, sorry, of um, getting out of the trenches and, and making that attack. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think the war gaming has got a lot, lot to um, lot to tell us, actually. Really, I mean, I uh, you know, I'm a lapsed war gamer in many respects. I, I still paint uh, soldiers and, and make models and so on, uh, more Second World War than than First. But um, I mean, my own 
interest in wargaming began when I was a kid, um, not just because of military modelling and airfix kits, but I, I went to there was a, a, um, a like a, a an old and vintage car museum near where I lived, and um, one June um, they did um, an anniversary battle of Waterloo um, using airfix soldiers, the old. 20 mil or whatever, whatever scale they actually were <laughs> in those days. Who knows? <laughs> um, but, I mean, thousands and thousands of them over this massive, massive area within this museum. And uh, Brigadier Peter Young was there and uh, and probably a few a few others uh, who I wasn't really aware of who they were. I'm sure Charles Grant would have been there and people like that. Um, and, and I remember seeing that and, and it's it sort of, you know, just as – modern commanders map out battlefields. I mean, I've done battlefield studies with army units where part of what they do is that they use the contents of their ration boxes to make a 3D map of a battlefield and then work out, you know, the assault on it. Um, and th- there's a great instructional value in that. I think we can learn a lot from it. And it's not just, you know, although there's nothing wrong with playing with toy soldiers, but I think that there is, from an historian's point of view, I think that wargaming is, is a really interesting and, and underused aspect of historical study because, you know, some of the rule sets, as we both know, are, are incredibly complex and well thought out. And although some of them, you know, those ones tend to be not as well uh, thought of commercially, you know, compared to Warhammer or uh, Flames of War or things like that, um, you know, I can think of Wargames Research Group rules in the sort of 70s and 80s um those sort of games i think you know they were they were used by serving soldiers in the baor um to to work out tactics for fighting potentially the the third world war which thankfully never came um so i think this this sort of thing actually is 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 an interesting angle of historical study and and it's uh, and it should be up there with quite a few other things i mean you know same way people do reenactment, and we learn a lot from reenactors in in terms of the equipment and stuff they've got. And I think actually wargaming should be should be a part of this as well. Yeah, yeah, and it's. I mean, I've been doing it for thirty odd years, Paul, and uh, uh, been through the entirety of human history. I think from early Sumerians through to uh, the far future. But the First World War has always traditionally been a period that has been difficult or has been perceived as being difficult to war game unless you were doing the the war of maneuver in the early months of 1914 that trench warfare is is just this grind it's almost a siege style of warfare but um certainly with this set of rules great war spearhead 2 which uh, i will shout from the hilltops is one of the best set of war games rules i've ever read then i know people have successfully recreated uh, most of the actions of the First World War. Robert Dunlop, who I've mentioned previously, um, he, he's well known within the community for putting on huge, huge battles. Um, in fact, he, he recreated the Marne um, actually on the in France itself, um, uh, on the land where the battle was fought with a, well, it's a ginormous table. I forget what it was, something like 24 foot table um re, uh, representing all the villages and the landscape um with six millimeter figures thousands of six millimeter figures and they had locals from the village uh coming into this display and and looking at it and and recognizing where their houses 
where their house was and that they got relatives or great great grandfathers or uncles that had actually fought there so I think there is that educational element to it as well and it's certainly not about glory glorifying warfare but understanding it better and learning more about it absolutely yeah I mean I can remember going to war game shows in the sort of you know in the 70s and, and 80s and, and a lot of the sort of senior figures of wargaming then uh, you know, like Don Featherston they were they were veterans of the second world war so they, they, these were men who knew what it was like to be at the sharp end of conflict so they, they were never about glorifying it in the uh, any aspect of it and um and, and I think if you look at those sort of classic um old school period of, of wargaming books that they wrote um I think they're massively important in the historiography of military history in the 20th century as well because you know, their books written by people who experience some of this stuff, and they put their their ideas and their views of it um, into those into those rules, and uh, and you can get quirky things. There was, it, was it Bruce Quarry that didn't like flamethrowers and wouldn't put flamethrowers. Oh, yes, <laughs> well, that was a step too far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter about tanks blowing up uh, other tanks with people inside it. No, no, there can't be any flamethrowers though. No, yeah. no, absolutely. So, yeah, so I think I think it's you know I think it's it's very interesting. Um, and I was I was looking at, at your website where there's a, a photograph of, of one of these recreations of the First World War battlefield, and it, it was it was you know a very very interesting thing to to see because I can look at that and picture the landscape as it is now, and I can picture you know the landscape to a degree as to, as, as to what it was then, and and um, and I think there's a lot you can you can learn from that. There's quite a few battlefields that we go to. Where there are museums that have dioramas of battles where they're using figures um, for it, and they are incredibly useful to really bring that to life for people. Um, uh, particularly once you then go out and you know you can walk some of this. So um, so yeah, it's. Uh, uh, I look forward to seeing the end results of this. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll uh, I'll certainly uh, keep you updated how it goes. There's a, a fantastic example. I don't know if you've ever been to the Leeds Armoury. Mm. Uh, um, yeah. yeah, the Agincourt uh, diorama there uh, by the Perry twins, who are, are well-known manufacturers in the hobby, and uh, a guy called Dave Marshall who runs a, a, a bespoke scenery and terrain-making uh, business. It's, it's just absolutely remarkable, uh, the size of it, and it really gives you that idea of uh, the lack of space that there was uh, to have all those men fight in and just toe to toe, toe to toe slogging it out in in what was probably one of the most brutal forms of combat that there has been through history, where uh, you're looking into the eyes of the person that you're about to kill, as opposed to being standing a few miles back with a rifle or a artillery piece. Um, before we close out, Paul, uh, I'd just like. Uh, to talk about your writing. So uh, just before I uh, started this call, uh, I dug out Walking the Somme by yourself um, and then went on to purchase two more books, Walking the Salient and Walking Arras. Uh, so they're coming to me. I haven't got those two yet. But um, when when did you first have uh, a book published? Um Walking the Somme was the first one, and that was published in um, in nineteen ninety seven. Um, so I went went across to France um, with the intention of writing this book, and I, and I wrote the book actually in in ninety five. Uh, but at that point, 
Pelensor, in their infinite wisdom, decided that they weren't going to publish it because they weren't sure that anybody was interested in walking the battlefields. But uh, I've had the last laugh because it's one of their best uh, best-selling books. So, um, uh, and it's they've been through a couple of editions now. So, so that that came out first, and I intended to then write one, like a trilogy, really, of books on the. British sectors of the Western Front, um, one covering the Somme, one on Ypres, which they then went on to do, and then one eventually on Arras. Uh, and I'm working on one at the moment, actually, sort of filling in the other bits. Um, so there's one on the Forgotten Front, looking at uh, Armentiers and Luz and Albers Ridge and New Chapelle and things like that. And I, I did take it across to World War Two at one point and did a walking D-Day book. Um, and I, again, I thought, well, there's like a million books on D-Day. Surely nobody wants another one. But nobody had ever written any anything like that from a, from perspective of actually walking the ground. And uh, um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, that's that's part of what I've done. Then I wrote a couple of specific books about um, places on the Somme because Pen and Sword were um, running this series called Battleground Europe at the time, which these books are a part of. And their idea was to cover everywhere on the Western Front. So... They got me to write one about Corselet, which was the village where I was living, which was where the Canadians fought. Um, so I write, uh, rather than that being a guidebook, it's a detailed account of the battle. And then I did another one on the village of Combles, looking at the um, assault on that area in the, the latter end of the Battle of the Somme, uh, involving men from the, uh, largely from the 56th London Division, capturing the woods there, Lousy Wood and Bully Wood, and then eventually the village itself. Um, and then I, I stopped writing for a little while um, because Battlefield Tours were taking up every spare minute and TV stuff. I was doing a lot of TV stuff then as, as well. And then in 2010, I did an, um, a book for them called Great War Lives, which was essentially retelling the story of the Great War in, um, in, in the lives of 12 soldiers from lots of different backgrounds in different parts of the war, Salonika and uh, Palestine, and as well as the Western Front. And they linked that into family history as well. It was part of a big family history series that they published. Uh, and then, um, you know, I've gone on to do a, a few other things for them as well. Um, so it's, you know, it's not something, you're never going to get rich uh, writing these books, but it, it's a way, a bit like the podcast, it's a way of putting these stories out there and, and, and putting that information out there. And it's it's quite pleasing to be sitting on a ledger coach driving around the Somme battlefields talking to people and then you, out the corner of your eye you see a couple of people walking down the road and they've got a copy of Walking the Somme under their their, uh, their arm. It's, it's quite nice to see that because it's it's obviously helped them get out and walk the ground, which is one of the best ways of looking at it. Yes, yeah, it's, it's certainly a favourite one on my bookshelf, uh, Walking the Somme, I have to say, although I had planned to go over this year um, and obviously that was stopped. Uh, I was I was intending to go over as a solo tour, a one man thing, and 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 walk it. I've previously been there with family, who it can be difficult sometimes to get them interested in what happened in a muddy field a hundred years ago. So uh, um, whenever whenever I've been on the sun, that's always been the case, and I, I, I really wanted to go over with your book in hand and just find my way around. Uh, just, just on my own, really, and uh, enjoy it. But I may well sign up for a ledger tour now. You've got me very interested in that prospect. Well, I mean, it, you know, it's uh, tours are not for everybody. Um, they're, they're useful ways of, of getting your head around battlefields and obviously having, you know, walking, uh, talking, um, great war or 
whatever period of warfare it is, encyclopedia to be able to ask it questions as well, which is the guide. Um, but you know, to, to get under the sort of the bonnet of it all, down, the nitty gritties of it, there's nothing better than going somewhere, you know, hiring a jeep somewhere in one of these villages, and then just spending the whole of your time just walking the ground from first light to to, to dusk. Um, you know, it's something that I mean, I've been visiting these battlefields now for a very long time, but it's something that I still very, very much enjoy doing. And, and before lockdown this year, I was out a few times at the beginning of the year, which is our sort of quiet period. I go out with some of the other guys that I work with and um, we stayed in a place up in Flanders, and which is right in the middle of the battlefields at Hoog and just walked out the door and carried on, you know. So uh, it, it's great to be able to do that. And, uh, you know, and it gives you time to stop and look and look at the maps and reflect on the ground and look at the contours and see that, even the gentlest of slope is a potential obstacle if you've got to charge up that with 66 pounds of gear and the Germans using your head as an aiming point, then, you know, you, you've got this, there's quite a lot to, to be considered there under those circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's the Eeps Alien that I've, do, I've done the most, to be honest, with a group of friends, um, although I haven't done that for a few years now. But certainly... And I, this is where I say your podcast came in with that bird song. It just, for whatever reason, it just absolutely put transports me right back to walking around Hooge or Langemark or Passchendaele and Tynecott. It's it's just so evocative. Um, Paul, right, so thanks very much for your time. There's just two more things that you need to do um, for me. If you don't I've I've taken up a considerable amount of your evening. I do apologise. Um but there's, there's two things I ask of every guest that comes onto the show. And the first is, it's quite a simple one, is that you agree to return and talk to me again at some point. No problem. be a pleasure. If it's not been too painful. Not at all. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and the, the, la- the last thing is that uh, we have what's called the God's Own Scale Virtual Library, uh, where I ask a guest to deposit a book or two or three books uh, onto the shelves and recommend to uh, the listeners now, as an author um, of a, a few books yourself, I'd, I'd like to, to deposit one of those, one of your own books, onto the shelf, and then perhaps uh, one or two others, if you've got any in mind. Um, well, if it's going to be one of my own, I think Great War Lives, I think, is a book that uh, people enjoy because it, it's sort of it's twelve men and, and what what the Great War did to them, and you know, men not just that were killed in the war but survived it, and one of them had. Uh, Frank Plum was a veteran I knew. He, he was a, a, an early guinea pig of plastic surgery because he got wounded in the head in 1918. Um, so that, that's the one that I'd put in there for me. But in terms of other books, I mean, there are just, there are so many incredible books on the Great War. And for me, it, it's the sort of, it's the classics of the, of the Great War that I, that I love to read again and again. And I've reread a few during lockdown. There, there's a book called Her Private's We by Frederick Manning. It was originally published anonymously as Private 19052, which was his actual arm regimental number in the Great War when he served the King Shropshire on infantry. And it's fiction, it's, but it's based on his experiences. And it starts um, just after the night attack of the 14th of July on the Somme, um, when the unit has just taken a pasting and uh, the lead character comes in um, and there's a new reinforcement draft, and and then it ends with the final attack on the Somme at Serre on the 13th of November, and the, the aftermath of that. Um, and most of it takes place out of the line, 
and villages behind the lines. Um, it's the first version was edited, um, and a second version came out, which I don't like the, the title of the next one. It's called Middle Parts of Fortune. The, the whole book is permeated with Shakespeare quotes, uh, and um, Her Private's We, to me, is, is the better title for it. And the first edition of it, which I've got, has got this woodcut on the cover, which shows a line of Tommy's marching to the front, and as you look down the column, increasingly they become skeletal, the skeletons. Um, so uh, it's a it's a fabulous book. It's one of the I just absolutely love it as a book, let alone what's in it. But it, it's it's the best book written on the Great War. Um, it is to get an idea. Yeah, well, it is. It, it's in my view, it's the best book written on the Great War because this is what it is like to be in an infantry battalion in 1916 and what these men experienced. It wasn't just going over the top, fighting Fritz, Bain, it's fixed. It was life behind the lines, the things they worried about, the things they cared about, how they spoke to each other. Um, the unexpurgated version of it is full of, um, full of swear words, which is how these men, you know, this wasn't an army of choir boys. Um, and it, it's an amazing book. It's a real human book. It's an amazing book. And I could read that, as I have done, I don't know how many times. So that's a great book. Another, I mean, there are, there are, there are so, many, so many others. You know, a good one from the other side of the wire, from the German side, is uh, Ernst Junger's Storm of Steel. And uh, he was uh, uh, a German uh, that served as an officer in the 73rd Hanoverians from 1915 until the end of the war. He was wounded multiple times. He was awarded the Paula Marit, the Blue Max, for bravery. Um, and uh, this is his account. And, and he was, you know, we tend to think of soldiers in the Great War hating it and not wanting to be there and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But Junger loved the war. Um, he was never happier when, than when he was leading a patrol. And, and the book is all about that. You know, he, he is a, a gung-ho, up-and-atom uh, kind of guy. And, and it comes across very, very strongly in this book but it, it, there's, there's just some incredible accounts of combat in there um, in some of the most famous locations like Guillemont on the Somme and La Vacquerie on the Hindenburg line he was in the assault on Bullecourt in March 1918 and uh, he was up near Gomacourt Cops 125 well he wrote another book called Cops 125 but, but um, about that area but Storm is still again still in print as I think there's a new translation of it um, but Junger, you know, he was an incredible guy. And he, when I first moved to the Somme, he was still alive. And uh, he was coming to the museum at Peron, Storial, to give a talk, aged 100. Uh, and, and I had my first editions of his books all ready for him to sign, but he was 100 years old and he got cold and he didn't come. Um, so I never, unfortunately, had a chance to, uh, uh, to meet him. But uh, he was like 103, when he when he died. Uh, um, Incredible guy. Um, so that's you know an unusual book in that it's a book written by a German that was translated into English, that became a bestseller in the 30s, um, remained out of print for a very long time, but has come back in recent years with a new edition, and it you know it gives you a very very good insight into the German perspective of the Great War. So that's one from either side of the wire, then. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Well, they will take pride of place on the shelves of the God's Own Scale podcast. Uh, Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, to speak to you, having listened to you for so long 
over every episode that you've released from uh, over, over the year. Um, and your knowledge is, is clearly exceptional uh, on, on your subject matter. It's been fascinating to hear your, your stories. And I don't know if I mentioned this on air, but your passion for the subject comes over as well, that clearly this is something that is an abiding passion for you. Well, it is. I mean, I've lived with it all my life, one way or another. And like I said, I, I realise I've, I've lived quite an extraordinary life, really, and, and some of the things I've done and seen. And um, and you know, I, I look at it now, and, and perhaps I'm even more impassioned with it now than I was 20 or 30 years ago. I don't know if that's possible, um, because it, it is something that just never diminishes the fascination with it and the stories of it. Uh, and as I grow older and see the world differently, I suppose, you know, the, the battlefields themselves, how I see them changes and, uh, and it gives you fresh perspectives on it. So, you know, I hope that um, I'll be doing that and, and thinking that way uh, until the very end. <laughs> I'm sure you will. Uh, mate, thanks very much for talking to you and hopefully we'll catch up with you again at some point in the future. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Sean. Welcome back to the studio. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did conducting it. And thanks once again to Paul for giving up his time so graciously to speak to me and impart some of his knowledge regarding the Great War and the Battle of the Somme. It was a real piece of self-indulgence, that interview was, uh, relevant to my own 6 mil SOM project, which I hope to take to the Joe 6 next year. And I know that Paul doesn't live too far away from Sheffield, so uh, if uh, you're listening, Paul, and you can get down to it, let's hook up and uh, have a chat. I'll buy you a coffee. On the note of my own hobby progress, those who follow me on Twitter will have seen my push with the Antietam game. As most of you will know, my other historical love is the American Civil War. And I have painted literally hundreds of figures over the last week. Uh, I've now got 28 brigades of Union and around about 12 or 13 brigades of Confederate. So still some way to go, um, but the project planning tells me that I'm way ahead of schedule, actually. It was forecast to conclude around about the end of March next year, but there's a slight chance I may get done before Christmas. Uh, I'll just have to see if the painting gods are kind to me. I do have a small commission I need to complete for a friend at the Stoke Club, Mr. Alan Mountford. If you're listening, your Austrians will be completed in the next five or six days. There's literally hundreds of those uh, 15mm Lancashire Games figures, which are very nice. 
so other than that i've been painting buildings ready for my mons game i've received another order from Battlescale, who are just down the road from me in betley and some lovely buildings they are too and also uh, i've now received my geek villain mat they had a sale on last weekend uh, where they were selling six by four mats for £50. This is their fleece material, which has a very short pile on it. So, um, But the detail on it is, is absolutely amazing. It's labelled as September 1939. Uh, and it's a very grassy looking mat with uh, flowers on it. The detail is just amazing. Uh, I couldn't be happier with it. So get over to Geek Villain and check them out. I know that they're just starting to move into cloth mats as well which is an interesting uh, direction for them to take. Uh, and I'm sure the product is going to be first class. Really happy with that. Okay, um, blog of the episode is, and I can't believe I've never seen this blog before, but it came to my attention on Twitter earlier in the week. And the blog is called General Whiskers Semi-Historical Wanderings. And the link, which I'll put in the show notes, will be is generalwhiskers.com. Um, General Whiskers seems to game mainly in 6, 3 and 2 mil. And the blog goes back, actually, uh, a number of years, which is why I can't believe I've not seen it before. But uh, October 2012, I think, was the original post. Um, as well as hobby updates on there and painting updates. There's general updates on life, the universe and everything. But it's a really great blog that I lost myself in for a couple of hours the other day. Um, it's really well written, really um, thoughtful. And uh, there's quite a number of projects in there that really tick the boxes for me. Um, I would suggest you get over there and have a look at it when you've got a spare few minutes. It's actually quite funny as well in parts, so it will uh, entertain as well as inform. Okay, that's enough from me then for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, I'll put out the usual request to anybody that has, has enjoyed the episode and would like to support me in my endeavours to keep this uh podcast going um, and that would be to support me through patreon uh, and again the link will be in the show notes but it is patreon.com forward slash god's own scale to all my patriots that already support me thank you so much it is greatly appreciated and really does help to keep the lights on in god's own scale towers and if you are considering joining the patron uh, sign up and gets access to some blog posts and one or two other bits and pieces there's not an awful lot uh, of benefit to be honest there's not many um, uh, advantages other than the fact you you keeping uh, me going and, and keeping funding the podcast and keeping me producing content however having said that this Friday, actually tomorrow, uh, the 13th of November, I'm doing my first 
question and answer session. I've got quite a number of questions to get through. It'll be a live stream, hopefully, if I can sort the technology out. This podcast should be published within the next hour, actually. It's about 20 past one in the afternoon on 12th of November 2020. Um but so if you do sign up for the Patreon in time, then uh, you can join in and drop me a question. I'm going to try and do it as a live stream. I don't know if the technology will work for me, but uh, that's the ambition. Uh, and I'll probably be painting uh, some figures as I go along. Um, but I will answer every single question that's sent. So it, it could be quite a lengthy one. The idea being that it is uh, a live stream for patrons and will be available for patrons to catch up on for a couple of weeks and then I shall release it as a general episode for everybody to listen to. So that is something to look forward to. I'm quite excited about doing that. It's the first time I've tried it, but um, we'll see how it goes. It may be a complete and utter unmitigated disaster. But hopefully not. Okay, um, there is another podcast recorded, which I've just had some IT difficulties with. It's with my good friend, Mr. Steve Evans. And uh, it's me and him just having a general chit-chat about the hobby. It's a, a slightly different format. Um, so it'll be a good one for you to get your paintbrushes out. Just sit down and listen, listen to us uh, waxing lyrical about this great hobby of ours as ever to you please keep safe thank you for listening we are in unusual times but this has been god's own scale i am sean clark as ever play nice and keep talking about six Little private Hendrick saw. He 
was the prisoner of war. Till the hand with the gun called it pink dog for fun, then fairly punched him on the door. Right across the barbed wire fence, the German dropped then a dear, oh dear. All the wire gave away and fairly yelled, hooray, as he ran for the Dutch frontier. Goodbye. Have you forgotten yet? For the world's events have rumbled on since those gagged days, like traffic checked while at the crossing of cityways. And the haunted gap in your mind was filled with thoughts that flow like clouds in the lit heaven of life. And you're a man reprieved to go, taking your peaceful share of time with joy to spare. But the past is just the same, and war's a bloody game. Have you forgotten yet? Look down and swear by the slain of the war that you'll never forget. Do you remember the dark months you held the sector at Mametz? The nights you watched and wired and dug and piled sandbags on parapets? Do you remember the rats and the stench of corpses rotting in front of the frontline trench and dawn coming, dirty white and chill with a hopeless rain? Do you ever stop and ask, is it all going to happen again? Do you remember that hour of din before the attack and the anger? blind compassion that seized and shook you then as you peered at the doomed and haggard faces of your men. Do you remember the stretcher cases lurching back with dying eyes and lolling heads? Those ashen grey masks of the lads who once were keen and kind and gay. Have you forgotten yet? Look up and swear by the green of the spring that you'll never forget.